In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Has Brian Kemp already moved on from David Perdue? No, look, I've been focused on Stacey Abrams. We've been waiting for this day for three years. Welcome to Political Georgia, the podcast we want you to count on for the most in-depth coverage of the 2022 election, especially the races for governor and U.S. Senate. I'm Greg Belustein, one of the political insiders here at the AJC. My co-host Patricia Murphy is taking an Arctic vacation and is off this week. So filling in today are two other AJC superstars, managing editor Leroy Chapman and senior reporter Tamar Hallerman. Thank you guys for joining us. It's great to be here. I want to know what an Arctic vacation is. <laughs> Basically, it means she's skiing. And she's see the nine feet of snow she tweeted out? That's what an Arctic vacation apparently is. <laughs> and she left us in this very bizarre weather world where it's hot one day and cold the next, and it's supposed to be snowing over the weekend. A quick reminder, if you are listening to us for the first time and you like what you hear, go ahead and subscribe to Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. New episodes come out every Wednesday and Friday and occasionally other days when there's special episodes. We'll get to that later. Coming up, we will dig into why Democrats are struggling over how to address inflation and what the governor plans to do about soaring gas prices. But let's start with the end of qualifying week, where Stacey Abrams and David Perdue made it official earlier this week that they will run for governor. I am excited to qualify for office today to run for governor of Georgia because I believe we deserve a leader who loves all of Georgia, even the ones who don't agree, disagree, who don't agree with us. We're right where we want to be right now. Uh, I love being the challenger. And Governor Kemp qualified on Thursday with an elaborate speech ceremony to show off his broad conservative coalition. The only thing that was missing was any mention of his Republican rival, David Perdue. So I asked him if he's already focusing on Stacey Abrams. Now, look, I've been focused on Stacey Abrams. We've been waiting for this day for three years. Uh, you know, what we're going to have to overcome to, to win the nomination, we're not taking for granted, but our sights are focused on what the you know, who, who the real opponent's going to be. We know the Democrats are going to line up behind her. I stated the case today why I'm the best candidate to beat her in November, and conservatives across the state realize that. Tomorrow, it seemed like we were destined for this day since Stacey Abrams' sort of non-concession speech. Since she ended her campaign, we all knew there would be a rematch between Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp, but who could have thought that David Perdue would be in the middle of all this? Um, and right now, look, he's struggling in the polls. He's lagging in fundraising, but he has an ace up his sleeve, and that's and that's Donald Trump, or at least he hopes he has an ace up his sleeve. And Donald Trump is planning to promote his campaign. He is holding a fundraiser for David Perdue next week. His son, Donald Trump Jr., headlined a, an event for him earlier this week. And you can bet you better believe that there will be a rally probably this month featuring Donald Trump coming back to Georgia to promote his entire slate of Trump endorsements. 
Absolutely. And we're waiting to see just how much of a, a Trump card that Trump endorsement is, is going to be for, for Senator Perdue. Um, and, and kind of that's the biggest card that he really has to play at the moment. Um, you know, on the policy front, Governor Kemp has really put forward a bunch of really conservative policies that uh, David Perdue himself backed when he was in the Senate. So it's going to be harder to differentiate himself on policy, even though Senator Perdue is trying to position himself to the right of the governor. Uh, but of course, what he does have have is anger in the Trump camp uh, over the fact that that Governor Kemp did not want to illegally overturn the election results or call for a special session of the legislature, uh, which is something he didn't have the power to do. And so uh, Senator Perdue's really hoping that'll be enough to help him cruise through through a primary. Uh, but right now that's proving, at least in some initial polls that we've seen, to be kind of difficult to build momentum. Um, not only has Governor Kemp amassed a huge um, advantage when it comes to fundraising, uh, which has extended to, to spending on television ads. But early polling has shown, you know, it's not a, a huge lead, but we're still talking about 10 points among Republican primary voters. So that's good position for the governor to keep building on. Uh, but as he mentioned, Greg, he's not taking that for granted. No, he's not, Leroy. And it's been really interesting because David Perdue opened his campaign with one message, basically, Trump, 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 Trump repeated over and over again. Every event features Trump's video endorsement. Every speech is laced with reminders that he's been endorsed by Trump. But he's also tried to sort of distinguish himself from Kemp in other ways in, in more recent weeks. He's talked about his plan to slash and eliminate the state income tax. He's talked about his opposition to the Rivian's $5 billion plant out in uh, East Georgia. Um, he's still promoting his support for Buckhead Cityhood, even though that plan is uh, dead in the water, at least this year in the legislature. So he's trying to find other issues beyond Trump to energize the base. But we all know that Trump is is his biggest Trump card. To our point. <laughs> it certainly is. And so if you're the Purdue camp, uh, you have to play the play Trump, right? I mean, you play up to that. You want to make sure that uh, it's, it's well known that you're the choice of the former president and you want to harness all of that energy and support for him, right? But I think the other thing, too, that Kemp's doing, and, that, and it puts some burden on Purdue, is that he's also making the case that I am the person who could beat Stacey Abrams. So it, it, Purdue's going to have to make that case, too. And he has to make that case having lost to John Ossoff. And I think Republicans will, will, will think that well, if he couldn't beat Ossoff, how's this guy going to be Stacey Abrams? Because I think that they, if they're comparing the two, would think that Abrams is probably a bigger threat than Ossoff was. And if you if you look at it that way, if you look at Republicans who are kind of looking beyond just the anger from uh, you know Trump supporters who are upset about election results, if that's not the litmus test, if the idea is that the the, the governor's office should belong in Republican hands, then at a certain point, Purdue has to make that pivot. And if he makes that pivot too, um, yeah, he's got some trouble because he's got to make that argument that he's best suited to beat Stacey Abrams, who's going to be funded by the National Democrats, who is, I'm sorry, not going to be, is funded by National Democrats, who have, who have momentum no matter what, that, that he's up to that task. And he's going to have to do that after you know, a showing just a short time ago where he did not perform. Yeah, Tamar, it, it's hard to put it into words how different these two qualification ceremonies were between David Perdue and, and Brian Kemp. David Perdue showed up on Wednesday uh, early in the morning 
uh, about 10 or 15 minutes before we thought he would show up. Um, you know, had a, a five or six staffers with him and a bunch of reporters, but no supporters were there really. Senator Brandon Beach, who's the only one of the only members of the legislature to endorse him, came down and gave him a hug. Um, he was talking to folks in the hallway. There were some Boy Scouts who happened to be wandering by who he took pictures with, but you know, kind of a bare bones event. A quick media gaggle kind of in the corner of the Capitol, and then he was out of there. Governor Kemp, by contrast, had hundred plus supporters lined up on the stairs at the state capitol. Same thing, a whole train of media were following him as he walked in and qualified and walked out. But instead of this uh, low-key affair, he had an elaborate ceremony. Congressman Drew Ferguson, for the first time really, uh, unequivocally endorsed him, said, if you like Joe Biden, you'll love Stacey Abrams. Talked about Governor Kemp's conservative record. It was really a show of force for the governor to show that, hey, he's got this broad coalition. He's got all these elected officials, but he also has these advocates who are lined up behind him. Really, him using the powers of his office to his advantage. Absolutely. And that's been a theme that we've seen from him over the last uh, couple months, using the powers of incumbency, um, using that bully pulpit that he has as governor, using things like his state of the state address, uh, you know, kind of his unrivaled power under the gold dome to be able to push pieces of legislation, declare certain things dead or alive, to appoint people um, to various boards and courts, including to appoint uh, David Perdue's first cousin, former governor. Governor Sonny Perdue to, um, well, not appoint, but essentially clear the way for him to become chancellor of the the university system of Georgia. And that, of course, sidelined one of David Perdue's other great trump cards was was kind of this network that him and, you know, his first cousin were able to build uh, over these last couple of decades. And when it comes to David Perdue, and you mentioned kind of a more kind of low-key entrance to the Capitol that comes in such a, such a stark difference from the way that I covered him and, and the years that I knew him up when he was in Washington, when he was Georgia's U.S. Senator. He had all the trappings of of the office and, and always kind of a big phalanx of aides kind of following him, you know, where he went. And so, you know, now though, he's running as an outsider, um, as somebody who, you know, is is at the moment at least dividing the party and even allies of his, longtime allies of his. Um, there are some who are still choosing to stick with Brian Kemp. And so I don't know how much he anticipated that would happen, but that's kind of been a surprise as well. The amount of people who have chosen to stick with the governor rather than go with the insurgent campaign of, of David Perdue. Yeah, Leroy, the Purdue network is fractured. You know, and this is once the most formidable political network, Democratic or Republican, in the state. You know, powered Sonny Purdue's two terms as governor, David Purdue coming from being basically an unknown to a, a first term of the Senate, um, and you know, putting different key deputies all over Washington and Atlanta in very powerful positions in the RGA, in Vice President Pence's office, in Donald Trump's office, the head of the the state Republican Party. You had all sorts of tendrils kind of everywhere. Now that network is is fractured. But I'll also say that maybe this is what suits David Perdue the best. I mean, he really did love running as an outsider in 2014 who was not supposed to win. He's facing three incumbent congressmen in that Republican primary and Karen Handel, a statewide official. He was kind of overlooked at some points. He remembers going to a barbecue earlier in that campaign and being you know, ignored by Governor Deal, who just didn't know him, wasn't trying to slight him, just had no idea who he was. And he liked that. I mean, he seemed to relish the fact that he was this underdog. And in my interview with him right after he qualified, 
kind of said the same thing that he he has the uh, Brian Kemp right where he wants him. And truth to be told, he's behind in the polls, but he's not way behind. He is still within striking distance. Most polls show him eight, nine, ten points. You know, not thirty, forty points out where he would be dead in the water. But but can you really credibly cast yourself as the underdog and the outsider when you are a former U.S. senator and you come with the it, the hearty endorsement? of the former president of the United States. I mean, <laughs> so, yeah. you know, this is not, he, he, it's hard for him to make the argument that that I am changed in the way that he did before, right? Because he came in with, I'm a businessman and not a politician. He's a politician today. So he can't even, it's hard to even make that argument. And then once you do that, if you're thinking about in the Republican primary, I think some of the more astute Republicans still uh, will make their calculation based on who can beat Stacey Abrams. <laughs> and if you're making that kind of vote, if you're a Republican and you want a Republican governor, uh, again, it's 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 I, I go back to the other point about uh, Purdue, you know, having lost to Ossoff, but Kemp, he beat Stacey Abrams. <laughs> and so sometimes it just comes down to making a calculation on who you think is going to be best suited to win. Uh, and, and let's go back to to uh, the, the Democratic uh, uh, nominating process for for president. Well, you know, Democrats across this country took the candidate that they thought could be Trump. <laughs> so after everything, after everything about, mm-hmm. you know, who's running and what what is my message, all of this? Well, you know, Democrats at a certain point, they just made a calculation. And, and that calculation spoke to the thing that is most prevalent, which is the division in this country. And the fact that uh, people who identify as Republican or Democrat are probably being a whole lot more calculated now about winning that general election. And um, th- this is this is going to come up. But I guess with Purdue, again, you know, is it uh, I got him where I want him because I'm a little bit behind? You know, that's the stuff he's certainly going to have to tell himself. <laughs> but, you know, if you gave him a choice, what would I rather be at this point? Would I rather be up 12 or down 12 or, or nine or whatever it is? I'm sure he, yeah. he switched places. <laughs> so um, yeah. you got to take a little bit of that as, as uh, someone talking themselves up rather than someone saying this is a strategy and boy, it's going to work out. I think their their best reason to be a little bit optimistic is that polls, including public polls we've seen, uh, but also their internals show that a significant number of Republicans still don't know about Trump's endorsement. Right? He hasn't been spending money on ads yet, really. Um, so, so what would you that, what, what would you pr- propose that that proportion is? I'm just curious because I don't I don't think I've I've read that. Yeah, there was one public poll that showed about forty percent of Republicans did. Is it forty? Um, it was um, that was a few weeks ago, um, yeah. but. Look, that number is going to go down as Donald Trump comes to Georgia. He's going to probably come to Georgia later this month, um, and if not, if, and, and multiple times. I mean, we also expect him in April and or May. And as with all that media attention that comes with that, there will be a lot fewer Republicans who don't know. But the question also is, will it matter, right? Are some Republicans just fed up? Or they sure. already know Governor Kemp. They know that he's the... First lifelong <laughs> Republican governor in Georgia history who has this very conservative record, <laughs> Well, and, you know, you've got a lot of Republicans going to vote in this primary who also voted for Kemp maybe twice because <laughs> they voted for him in a primary and they voted for him. And they will walk into the booth understanding how close the election was when he barely squeaked out a win over Stacey Abrams. So, again, there's probably going to be some calculation. So uh, so those same voters are out there. So they, they have to make that choice, too. Yeah. So all of the stuff you're talking about doesn't happen without that history also have informing this decision too. There's also a question, you know, we still don't know 
the clout that Donald Trump holds mm-hmm. in 2022. Obviously, he was very formidable in 2016. Um, and he was formidable among many conservatives and Republicans in 2020. Uh, but he's already been out of office now for more than a year. Um, and so it'll be very interesting to see just what his pull is, you know, closer to 18 months out when we get to May. He, of course, has in- endorsed a full slate of people in Georgia up and down the ballot, including people like Burt Jones, Jody Heiss, uh, Vernon Jones. Vernon Jones. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see how many of those candidates are able to make it through their their primary battles. I would suspect that that you know he still does have a significant pull among you know that that party faithful, the people who are the most likely to come out for a Republican primary. But I also think that there's a group of conservative Republicans who are eager to move on from Donald Trump. They might not be saying it very loudly, but I could see also people who are just eager to move on and and turn the page. And it doesn't necessarily bother them that somebody like Brian Kemp didn't get that endorsement from Trump, especially if they like what he's done on the policy level. It's funny, Leroy, because that's that's David Perdue's argument that he's the only one who can unite the Republican Party, even though he's dividing it by running in the first place, because he can bring the Trump faction back into the fold. Brian Kemp says, I'm the only one who can defeat Stacey Abrams because I've defeated her before and because I've got the track record that proves it. Meanwhile, Stacey Abrams is able to kind of float above it all. This was only her second public in-person event since she announced her race for governor in December. She had a a kind of a smaller event um, a few weeks ago in announcing union endorsements. And of course, she's been out doing interviews and raising money. This was only her second in-person event. And she hasn't had to do many in-person events, right? She hasn't felt like she had to rev up that campaign machinery yet. This is not 2018 where she's facing a, a formidable or at least credible challenger in Stacey Evans, um, where she doesn't have that much rain, name recognition, where she doesn't have proven fundraising ability, where she doesn't have uh, a, a campaign agenda, national profile. She has all that, right? She has huge, She's a yeah. fundraising juggernaut. She doesn't <laughs> have to worry about that. So. She's slowly revved up those gears, and she's now, the next week, she's going on, a, on the campaign trail for the first time. But in the meantime, she's able to just kind of hit the middle, kind of talk about the things she wants to talk about, expanding Medicaid, boosting education funding, economic equality, things that aren't necessarily going to be very polarizing to a, a broader audience um, in, in November. Yeah, she has the luxury to be calculating in a way that says she no longer has the burdens of uh, making sure that she has uh, this sort of name ID and statewide profile that she even lacked. I mean, you think about her her story of how she became the nominee. I mean, she had not held statewide office, had to introduce herself to, self to the entire state, you know, strategically. And, you know, she had a lot to do in terms of being able to uh, run a credible campaign against Kemp, against a lot of headwinds, where, where, where I think a lot of people didn't think she could win. And of course, the recent history of Democrats and lots of other things says that she probably couldn't have, and then she came within a whisker of winning. Uh, but yeah, the payoff for that is, is today, that she's uh, able to be a whole lot more uh, strategic and, and calculating. And, and, and this is one of the calculations, of course, is to, to stay out of the muck. And I guess if you go back to our recent history also with, with Raphael Warnock, uh, unlike Abrams, he he had to do some of the same things, but he was certainly, while you had Kelly Loeffler having to, to fight off um, Collins, <laughs> uh, you know, he was able to do the same thing. So I'm sure as Stacey Abrams observed that, um, there is something to be taken away from uh, kind of the way Warnock also did the same thing, which is to be able to sort of define himself and speak 
to, to a general election audience while those two duked it out over who's the most conservative. That's a perfect place for a break because when we come back, we'll talk more about the Democratic challenges coming up. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. And we're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Here with my two guests, AJC Managing Editor Leroy Chapman and senior reporter Tamar Hollerman, who is not a senior, decidedly not a senior, but she is a senior reporter. Right? That's fair to say. I was going to say, I'm a senior reporter. You're a, very, you're a senior reporter, but you, you, you are, a, are you a millennial or a zennial? I don't even know. I'm a millennial. Very you're firmly millennial. in the middle. Good. Of, okay. of I'm millennial. A, I'm a, yeah. I'm an aging millennial, and, an and Leroy, you are, you are, you're, you are a Gen Xer, right? I am definitely Gen X. I, I, I okay. and, and in fact, I turned 51 last week, and uh, so yes, I am Gen X. You're, you're welcome, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we, we all the cool, resident. all the cool stuff is related to us. So you're welcome. And Jay is our resident boomer. Jay, thank you for your service. Jay uh, is 64 years old, waiting for his AARP <laughs> card so I can retire and get the pension. <laughs> Jay is actually a millennial. Exactly. <laughs> so Jay is also a millennial. So we have outnumbered you, Leroy, even though I do not feel like a millennial most days. Um, I want to remind you to subscribe to the Morning Jolt, which sets the stakes and the agenda in Georgia politics every morning. Uh, we work on it every night and every morning. Tomorrow, I bet you miss working on the Jolt every day. Tomorrow's a former insider <laughs> who used to always work on the Jolt. <laughs> Yes, it's, it's nice a, getting it's my evenings back. Love. No offense to uh, Patricia and the the great Jim Galloway. Fridays is going to be especially good. Tia has been working for a few days on an item about Marjorie Taylor Greene's stock transactions and maybe some hypocritical tweets. So stay tuned for Friday's jolt. You'll definitely want to read it. Also, head to subscribe that ajc.com slash podcast and your first month of unlimited digital access is just 99 cents. Can you believe it? Again, that's subscribe that ajc.com slash podcast to know what's really going on and make Leroy very, very happy. Okay, <laughs> on to the next segment. Governor Kemp was asked on Thursday what he plans to do about rising gas prices. That'd be a great question for the president of the United States. Uh, we need to have a better energy policy than we have right now. But outside of that, what I can control, uh, we are working on as we speak upstairs, uh, having a two-month moratorium on collection of the state's uh, motor fuel tax is going to save people anywhere from 25 to 30 cents a gallon. Uh, we, I hope that's getting to my desk sooner rather than later in the next few days. I want to give a time frame because the, the legislature is kind of in control of that. But we spoken to the speaker and the lieutenant governor. Everybody's on board with doing that. We realize Georgians need relief at the pump, and we're going to get them that. 
Tomorrow, that legislation is moving very quickly. It's hyperdrive through the, the legislative chambers. One of those sort of surprise legislation that is going to affect a lot of Georgians because the war in Ukraine is affecting a lot of Georgians, of course, with the higher gas prices, concerns about rising inflation. Something that's really concerning to Democrats. You know, it's something that Democrats are going to have to deal with because there's a lot of economic uncertainty out there. There's a lot of blame being put on President Biden's administration, whether it be fair or unfair. And Democrats are going to have to answer. Uh, we're already seeing from Senator Warnock his plan to suspend federal gas tax collections on, on fuel. Um, Stacey Abrams talked about her plan to increase economic equality by, by certain targeted tax breaks. Um, but really, you know, this is, this is something that you'll hear from Republicans over and over again, um, questioning Biden's handling of the economy. Absolutely. And it's something they've really hammered him on pretty much from day one of his administration, um, way before uh, we were thinking about Ukraine. You know, economic issues, it's something the Republican Party feels like they really, um, you know, not only own, but it's something they feel like with voters that they really stand head and shoulders above the Democratic Party. So it's one traditionally they've gone back to over and over and over again. And it's such a tough one to grasp when it talks about inflation. And certainly Joe Biden has stumbled a lot when it comes to talking about issues like inflation. And I know he's been hesitant to even use that that phrase. And it puts Democrats in a really tough position, too, because these are such complex issues, especially when we're talking about gas and oil prices. That whole market is so international. There's, there's not even a ton that Joe Biden himself can do, but it's something that I think the average reader or or voter doesn't understand, myself included, all these international markets. Mm -hmm. And so it's a very easy way to distinguish yourself from the, the party in power and just to be able to hit them and say, you know, we would do better. So it certainly, you know, it puts people like Raphael Warnock in a really tough position as well, running for, for re-election. Already the polls look, look so bad for Joe Biden in terms of uh, approval ratings. You know, he's been stuck in the upper 30s, low 40s lately. And especially when it comes to his handling of the economy, I, I found one recent poll from CNN that found that 62% of voters disapprove of the way that the president has handled um, the economy, only 37% approve. So that puts Democrats in a really tough spot, right? They want to support their president, um, the leader of their party. But because there has been such kind of fumbled messaging coming out of the, the White House. It's been tough for them. You know, they want to put some daylight between themselves and Joe Biden, but they also don't want to burn bridges. And so you mentioned this this legislation to suspend the federal gas tax that would save about 18 cents a gallon for, for your average consumer. So that that's certainly something, but it does put Democrats in a bind. You know, especially when it comes to other aspects of their agenda, uh, which have been totally stalled. What do they talk about at this point? If their Build Back Better proposal, um, you know, their big social spending package is, is stalled, um, you know, and they're just getting hammered over and over again by Republicans for an issue that they don't have the most control over. Exactly. And Leroy, I mean, we've seen the, the impact in Atlanta already. Record high gas prices all over across, all across Metro Atlanta. My local gas station is at about $4.50. Um, people are feeling this in their pocketbooks. And they're looking to politicians to, to curb that sticker shock somewhere or another. And there's only so much they can do, right? I mean, what, once you take away these gas taxes, that also means that hundreds of millions of dollars that would go to road repairs, infrastructure improvements, those kinds of things are put on hold. But there's not much, There's well, there's really nothing else the state government can do after this. And frankly, there's not much immediately that a federal government can do other than releasing 
um, stockpiles of, of, of reserve oil and negotiating with OPEC and foreign countries to increase their oil supplies because the U.S. is already at a pretty good clip right now in terms of producing its own oil. Yeah, that, that strategic oil reserve release is a, is, a, is a drop in the bucket with fuel consumption. So, uh, you know, you, you're not talking about real solutions. And, and here's also just what it means for Democrats, because this is bad news. Uh, I mean, it's the depth of how bad this news is. I don't know if we, we really know yet, if we can, can, can quite calculate it, but it is horrible. Because it's this too. It's not only the, the fuel costs that affect everyone, but you know today, uh, you know Mike Connell, uh, one of our economy reporters, wrote about inflation being up an additional ten percent uh, compared to this time last year. Well, what does that look like in Atlanta? Not only is it gas, but it's also housing, which is incredibly expensive now. So when you think about what it costs to not only buy a house because of what's happened, but also rent, and that's really the, the rub, right? When you think about young voters who mobilized because they thought that um, student loans burdened some debt um, and also the, the high cost of living in a lot of cities sort of uh, kept them from launching in adulthood and, and progressing as quickly as their parents. Well, think about that now, <laughs> because if beforehand you thought student loans was, was student loans were burdensome, and that burden is going to come back, so it's not like it's going to go away. So you got a reprieve during the pandemic. But if you're a young person trying to buy a house or pay off your education, and as as Democrats certainly made a lot of promises and articulated the angst and the 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 anxiety of those those uh, those kids. Well, what do they do now? Because now you're going to Joe Biden at a certain point is going to have to ask for their vote again. And Democrats in the midterms who who were in lockstep speaking to these folks, they needed them. And certainly they showed up and were and were decisive in, in, in many races where where Democrats wound up winning. You know, well, what do you say to them now? I mean, it is a the depth of this problem for Democrats. Uh, I don't think we've quite uh, calculated yet. And, and I don't know if they can get out of it. Anger and fear are for sure the most animating forces for, for voters. And so there's anger about the, the situation and, and kind of the pinch that people are feeling in their pocketbooks. You're going to blame the party in power. And it was already looking bad for Democrats before all of this. Just traditionally, during midterm elections, the party in power almost always suffers at the polls. So already it wasn't looking great that Democrats could keep the House and potentially the Senate. You add this war in Ukraine that's creating even more uncertainty. And it's like a recipe for disaster for the Democrats. I mean, look, we don't know what's going to happen between now in November. Um, so much could change, especially if things escalate in Europe. Um, and hopefully it doesn't lead to a global conflict. But, you know, that that certainly isn't off the table. So so maybe things will change. But I think if the election were held today, um, Democrats would be in store for, for massive losses. For sure. And that leads us to our next segment, who is up and who is down well, up is an easy one, prices, right? <laughs> Doesn't necessarily fit in our view of up is good, but up is definitely prices. We're seeing fuel prices go up. We're seeing um, household goods. We're seeing scarcity of some key supplies. And as you as you just mentioned, Tamar, the big question is how our government, state and federal, deals with those higher prices. Who's down? Well, we're at the end of our five-day qualifying period. Who's down is Anyone who thought they wouldn't face stiff competition, with the exception of Stacey Abrams, it doesn't look like she's she's drawn a or or Senator Warnock it doesn't look like either of them have drawn um, credible challengers. But up and down the ballot, there are 
a glut of candidates. There's seven candidates on the Democratic side running for lieutenant governor. There's a trio of Democrats running for insurance commissioner, labor commissioner. There's a bunch running for secretary of state. Um, you've got Republican, competitive Republican fields in all of those races as well. Uh, there used to be a time, Leroy, when Democrats scrounged around to fill out a ticket, you know, when they celebrated just having a candidate for every statewide office, let alone, you know, other down ticket races. And now they're dealing with a surge of competition, you know, that could strengthen the candidate, but it could also lead to all sorts of headaches come May 24th. Yeah. And, and I think that's that's the, the, the point, though. The good take, the takeaway is uh, there, there's hope where, where none existed not too long ago, if you're a Democrat, right? <laughs> uh, you know, there, there was a time uh, really not too long ago where, uh, you know, the constitutional offices were uh, in the state and it was just about foregone that it was going to be a Republican and a Democrat couldn't win. And they just had trouble even finding candidates who wanted to be the crash test dummy in November for <laughs> for a Republican win. Well, that, that has changed. And so one of the things I, I, I think is is certainly heartening for Democrats is uh, going back and looking at what not Mark Nisi reported just about a month or so ago when he looked at uh, the uh, the voting rolls in uh, Georgia and there had been another shift. And so the voters are getting younger and less white. And so that gives Democrats some hope. So, you know, we're saying that. And of course, the other thing, too, is, as uh, you know, national Democrats think of this as being a, a battleground, um, there's going to be a need to grow candidates. And so those folks should start and will, will start uh, in some of those legislative uh, uh, races. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you'll see some folks who raise a hand for a congressional race and, and, and who knows what winds up happening. But yeah, it, it's, it says something to Georgia as a state and the state's politics is no longer one party. And I think that's a testament to it. I'll never forget the story of Lucy McBath running for office. We all thought she was going to run for a state legislative seat. At the last minute, she decided to run for Congress, and now she's a two-term incumbent. So things like that happen. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to save our reader mailbag, unless you guys want to partake. We'll save it for Patricia. She'll get really mad because we have a really good question from June Montgomery of Evans, Georgia. But I won't make you guys get personal. On Sunday, we'll have a special edition of Politically Georgia with Andrew Young. You will not want to miss this show. Ernie Suggs, who just wrote a book on Andrew Young called The Many Lives of Andrew Young. It's out in a few weeks. He conducted the interview. And then in between, we talked a little bit about what we heard. So, Greg, as you mentioned, uh, Ernie Suggs is writing a book. And of course, you, Greg Bluestein, has written a book. And I can't tell you uh, how proud I am of uh, the two of you uh, and, and, and taking that on in addition to your duties uh, with the AJC and your commitment to our community and our state here. Uh, so it's quite an accomplishment. So I just wanted to say that publicly for both you and for Ernie. Thank you. Thank you. Tomorrow's next. We're going to, we're going to rope her into writing a book. It's, it's come not- on tomorrow. What are you waiting on? on? <laughs> really lazy. Let me tell you. Congrats, yeah. Greg. I'm so excited. I've, I've pre-ordered my book. I'm planning to attend the event at the Marcus Jewish Community Center uh, that you're going to be uh, speaking at with our friend Bill Nygut from Georgia Public Broadcasting. And I'm so proud to know you. Obviously, I've gotten to work with you for six years now. And just to, to see how massive, you know, your footprint has become not only in Georgia, but but nationally is is so cool to see and much deserved. You're one of the hardest working reporters I've, I've ever seen and gotten to work with. And I'm, I'm so honored to get to call you a friend and a colleague. Oh, you're making me blush. This was not what I thought how we were going to end the show. But yeah. thank you, Leroy. Thank you, Tamar. It really means the world to me. And 
The book is out March 22nd. It is called Flipped, and you can buy it on Amazon, Walmart, Target, Barnes & Noble's, anywhere um, where you can we get a book, you can buy it. You got to invite me yes. back when I, can, when I can be prepared to say who's up and who's down. I, see, I never get to do things like that, so I'd love to do it the next time you invite you me. Know, do you know, do you want to give it a go now? What? Okay. I can tell you who's down. Who's Look, down? I'm a newspaper editor, so I know who's down. Bank of America <laughs> in Atlanta. <laughs> no, that that story about um, Bank of America and, um, you oh, know, you've yeah. got, right, right. So you've got Ryan Coogler who, of course, walks in and he has this incident. And, of course, it winds up getting out. I mean, this happened back in January and he didn't, didn't really want to make a deal out of it, but it wound up getting out. But the point to that is, is, is how, again, it is one of those instances where even in a place like Atlanta, uh, you've got uh, this place that in terms of the country, when you think about uh, the black upper middle class and wealth, <laughs> whereby still, if you, if you, if you walk in, uh, there, there's a perception of perhaps, just perhaps, you know, you may be uh, on the take or you may be. Uh, trying to do something that clearly you have no intentions of doing. And that's that's just unfortunate that uh, in Atlanta, where if you think about African-Americans, how they think about Atlanta, you you probably would not expect that here. But yet here we are. So that's definitely a down. I used to work for Bank of American College, by the way. So oh, shout wow. out to my former colleagues, if any of them are still alive. <laughs> like I said, I am 51, so... That was, a long, that was a long time ago. <laughs> for, for the few people who haven't seen that story, um, Ryan Coogler uh, kind of was trying to be discreet, right? He like, write, wrote a note to a bank teller saying, hey, I, I don't want to make a big deal about this, but can you withdraw however much money it was um, in private? You know, he didn't want to show off his cash. I think it was 12000 bucks, right? right. $12,000, yeah. which, you know, it is a considerable amount of money, but not, uh, you know, unreasonable. It's not like he had to walk out with a suitcase. <laughs> Yeah, but but the teller apparently mistook that as a threat and called the cops and it escalated and now is just getting out and it's sparked all sorts of dialogue and debate and, and discussion about um, about exactly what Leroy just mentioned. Well, yeah, there's been some debate about whether or not because he was wearing a, a mask, it's COVID, and he was wearing dark glasses and a, and a beanie if that's if that is tantamount to a bank robber's uniform. <laughs> so therefore, you should not complain because you're wearing essentially a uniform. But at, at a certain point, you know, he was able to identify himself. After the cops got there and put him in handcuffs, he was able to identify himself. I don't think it's a stretch to say he probably could have done the same things before the police got there. <laughs> you didn't have to call the police for him to pull out all the identifying information you needed in order to say, this is my account, this is my money that I'm trusting in your bank. I mean, so so the idea that or the argument that the guy showed up in a bank robber's uniform is just, you know, I, I reject that out of hand. See, Leroy, you really are good at the ups and downs, or at least the downs. What, what well, you know, just do special downs. <laughs> I'll come with the list. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Every week. <laughs> Don't forget to rate, review, share and subscribe to this podcast to help us grow the show. And don't forget to tune in again on Sunday and on Wednesday to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. 
It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years and I am still amazed at how rich the city's black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Constitution.